Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Ben Cahill, Senior Fellow in the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and a visiting research fellow at the University of Texas at Austin. As you probably heard, the Biden administration recently announced a pause on approvals of new liquefied natural gas, or LNG, export facilities, thrilling some and enraging others. I'll ask Ben to help us understand how the U.S. became the world's largest LNG exporter, the arguments for and against increasing those exports, and how the federal government will ultimately decide what is or is not in the public interest on this topic. We'll also talk about how other countries, particularly Russia, Europe, and Japan, are seeking to influence the future of U.S. LNG. Stay with us. All right, Ben Cahill from the Center for Strategic and International Studies in UT Austin. Welcome to Resources Radio. Thanks so much, Daniel. It's really great to be here with you. Yeah, it's great to have you. I'm a little surprised we haven't had you before to talk about um, all of your really fascinating work. Today, we're going to talk about your work on liquefied natural gas exports. Um, So we're going to use this term LNG a lot today to refer to liquefied natural gas. Um, But before we get into the weeds, uh, we always ask our guests how they got interested working on energy or environmental topics. So what drew you into this path? Well, for me, I think it was a bit of an accident, actually, like a lot of your guests. Um, I was always interested in politics and international affairs, but I never really thought about working in energy and climate too closely when I was younger. Uh, one of my first jobs out of college was at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And basically, I worked on the place that did social sciences research. One of the projects that we did was advising the government of Sao Tome and Principe on how to manage expected oil revenues, because there was a lot of oil exploration going on there. And it was the first time that I'd really read about the resource curse and all the challenges of managing resource revenue from extraction in oil and gas producing states. And I got really interested in that. And I thought, "Mm, maybe I should focus on this. So then I went to graduate school and had a concentration in energy, started working as a consultant. I originally started in political risk analysis, then I did more corporate strategy, corporate analysis of, of the oil and gas industry. And increasingly, I've worked on more transition issues, including at CSIS for the last three and a half years. And so in general, I'm trying to use this knowledge that I've built up of the oil and gas sector uh, to try to think around methane issues and you know other issues around climate concerns associated with oil and gas and how the whole industry is, is, is moving and changing. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you mentioned Sao Tome and Principe. I, I know those are islands, but I, I don't know actually where they are on the map. Yeah, off the west coast of Africa, um, small volcanic islands. Uh, for a brief period of time in the early 2000s, there were sort of oil exploration hotspots. No one actually discovered anything. But at the time, there was some innovative work done to try to set up an oil revenue management law and think about creating a national oil company, building all the institutions that you need when you have the sudden influx of resource revenue. Um, and that turned into a book project that I, I worked on as a research assistant and um just kind of touched off this interest in, in the so-called resource curse and, and how that's played out in different places around the world. 
Yeah, and, and all of that work is super interesting. I wish we had time to talk about all of it, uh, but today we're going to focus, as I mentioned, on on LNG exports. So um, let's start with a little bit of history, because the history really is pretty remarkable. So let's imagine it's 20 years ago. We're both younger and more fabulous, and uh, <laughs> we're having a drink. Um, uh, but we're still energy nerds. Uh, and I say to you 20 years ago, uh, I'll bet you, Ben, a thousand dollars that by 2024 the U.S. will be the world's largest exporter of LNG. How would you have reacted? Well, to be fair, I didn't know too much about LNG 20 years ago. I've picked up a thing or two over the years. Um, I would have taken that bet. Most people would have thought you were crazy at that point because in the early to mid 2000s, you know, the gas supply deficit in the United States had been growing for a while. And the country had already built LNG import terminals or receiving terminals and was in the midst of building out regasification. Um, many people anticipated the gas supply deficit would only grow over time and the U.S. would have to import more and more LNG. In fact, I just came across a slide from Stephen Sapsinski, who's a, a great LNG reporter for Bloomberg. It was from an investment bank in the year 2004, predicting that the United States would become the world's largest LNG importer. And obviously the exact opposite happened. So. It's fun to be an energy analyst because you just never know what's going to happen <laughs> from one five-year period to the next. But I think this is one of the most surprising twists that we've seen in global energy really in the last 20 years. Yeah. And so, um, you know, listeners probably have a, a sense of what happened between 2004 and 2024 to make my uh, prophetic prediction come true and make me win a thousand dollars from you in 2004 dollars probably be worth like two thousand dollars today. Um, but, uh, but give us a sense of what happened. What happened between then and now? Well, the shale revolution happened. Um, there was this enormous boom in oil and gas production that was really a byproduct of you know, the advances that we saw throughout shale oil and gas extraction through the use of hydraulic fracturing and lateral drilling and you know, all those learnings that have, have taken place ever since. And so I think 2005 was the period of peak oil imports in the United States. And since then, the situation has, has changed pretty dramatically. What that meant for the LNG sector is that the companies that owned LNG import terminals actually converted several of them to become export terminals. Um, Chenier was really the pioneer in this regard. It was the first company to kind of envision that the U.S. would soon have a surplus of natural gas. And it put in one of the first applications, I believe, to convert it to an export facility. And I believe six LNG receiving terminals now have, have been transitioned to become export terminals. And as production has grown and grown in the United States, the scale of LNG exports has grown as well. So last year, the United States officially became the world's largest LNG exporter, um, even more than Australia and Qatar. And the US is also in the midst of a huge capacity expansion. Um, so export capacity is gonna grow by something like 85% in the United States between now and 2028. It's possible that some of these projects might be delayed, but you know, by the end of this decade, we're we're going to see a huge capacity expansion. And again, we're already the world's largest exporter, so it's a pretty dramatic shift in a short period of time. And it's worth noting that um, Gulf Coast LNG exports only started in 2016, so it's really quite a recent phenomenon. Yeah, I remember I was actually in Houston at Sierra Week, the big energy event, when the first cargo uh, left the Gulf Coast, and um, it was toasted by many uh, on that day um, in Houston. Um, but of course, as listeners know, you know, 
LNG exports are not toasted by everybody. Um, there are, uh, I would say, a large number of environmental advocates who have become more and more opposed to LNG exports. Um, those critiques have, at least in part, resulted in a major policy announcement from the Biden administration uh, pausing the issuance of new approvals uh, for new projects. We're going to come back to that uh, pause in, in a couple of minutes. But first, can you give us a sense of um, the arguments that environmental advocates make against LNG? And as much as you can in a short period of time, give us a sense of the merits of their case. Sure. You know, I think on a macro level, this is kind of a story about the United States emerging as a huge fossil fuel exporter in recent years, you know, not just of LNG, but also of crude oil and petroleum products. Um, this is, again, something that really just touched off with LNG in 2016 with, with crude oil after the lifting of the crude oil export ban. So I think in many ways, the country is kind of grappling with what it means that we are this big fossil fuel exporter. And for a lot of environmental groups, it just seems incoherent for the United States to make net zero on climate commitments while it has the status of exporting a huge amount of fossil fuels to the rest of the world. There are concerns that LNG exports are going to lock in fossil fuel consumption, because of course these are 20 year plus um, time horizon projects. Um, there are arguments that LNG exports and, and natural gas more broadly are worse than coal on a life cycle emissions basis especially if you count for methane emissions across the value chain from production through transportation, through liquefaction and shipping. And a lot of environmental groups also believe that LNG exports primarily compete with renewable energy and not with coal. And therefore locking in gas is a bad idea because it's going to disadvantage renewables. Um, I think in some of these arguments, there are really strong merits and in others, you know, not so much. Um, first, I say this over and over again, but I really believe it's true. You, you don't kill fossil fuel demand by killing individual supply projects. I just don't see the evidence for this. I think the Keystone XL pipeline is a good um, illustration of this. I mean, that project was killed off. The Canadian oil sands production rose anyway. So where fossil fuel demand exists, companies and countries tend to rise up to meet that demand. Um, to me, it's much more meaningful to focus on cutting demand through electric vehicle adoption, support for renewable energy, and infrastructure, permitting reform, and all the rest. On the emissions side, you know, a lot of the current case against LNG really rests on a couple studies, uh, which are mostly pre-publication papers. And you know, if you make really aggressive assumptions on methane leakage throughout the supply chain, again, especially in the upstream and midstream segment, but in shipping as well, that leads to pretty dire outcomes, gas worse than coal on, on a life cycle basis. I, I would just note, there's a lot of serious work that has been done on LCA analysis. Uh, many studies have been published on this, many are ongoing. I think that finding about you know gas being worse than coal really doesn't square with the literature, but it's a robust area of debate. It really has to do with what happens with gas consumption and um, how durable it is. Yeah, and just one quick clarification. Um, totally agree with you. It's it's a complex topic and lots to to learn there. Um, you just used the term LCA, and for for the non nerds among us, LCA stands for life cycle analysis, which accounts for emissions across the sort of entire value chain of uh, of the given product. Sorry to interrupt, Ben. Keep going. Very good clarification. Thank you. There is this idea as well that that gas doesn't compete with coal, and I think that's misplaced. And it definitely does compete with coal, especially in Asia. And phasing down coal consumption in Asia is really a critical goal for climate outcomes. But I would say, you know, there is this notion that you often hear from the LNG industry and, and supporters of the industry that 
cheap American US LNG is going to displace coal in Asia, and therefore it's a good weapon in the fight against climate change. I, I think that is really unsupported by the data. Um, it's really a question that involves a lot of assumptions about what happens with pathways for energy demand in different countries, what fuel choices they make, how fuels compete with each other based on costs, what kind of infrastructure gets built. So it's really kind of simplistic to just say that this boom in US LNG is going to help displace coal in Asia, and therefore it's a big win for climate. I think we need to question that assumption. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so definitely some um, perhaps unsupported arguments uh, on both sides. But you've given us a, a good sense of the environmental uh, side of the case and where it's strong and where it may be weaker. Um, take us over to the industry side. You just mentioned the sort of climate argument that some members of industry make in favor of LNG. What are some of the other uh, arguments that LNG proponents make? And, and again, can, can you help us understand the merits of the case? Yeah, I think LNG project promoters look around the world and see pretty robust gas demand for decades to come. Um, the fact is a lot of these US LNG projects have signed numerous supply deals in the last couple of years, especially after the Russian war on Ukraine, when there was this almost panic about energy security. That suggests to me that plenty of buyers as well as banks believe that gas demand is not going to be a 10 year phenomenon or 15 years, but will continue over the long term. There is an argument that supplying gas, especially to Asia, again, will displace coal and drive down emissions. And therefore, uh, you know, we want to discourage coal consumption as fast as possible and that all things being equal, you know, scarcer gas with less supply from the United States makes it harder to switch. Um, I think also one of the critical arguments for US LNG has to do with global energy security. Um, you know, I think it's uncontroversial. It's obviously true that US LNG really played a big role in global energy security in 2022. And again, last year, um, Europe was scrambling for alternative supplies to Russian pipeline gas after we saw that steep drop. And US LNG played a really critical role. And in fact, two thirds of US LNG in the last two years have ended up in Europe. So companies are depending on US gas, especially buyers in Europe, as they seek an energy divorce from Russia, and there's a sense that it will be needed over the long term. Again, I think that the some of the climate considerations here really merit a lot more detailed examination. You know, coal to gas switching led to a huge emissions reduction in the United States. That story continues to unfold today. I don't think it's going to play out that way in many other countries around the world for various reasons, which we could discuss, but it's about availability of gas infrastructure, availability of cheap gas. You know, not all countries, especially in Asia, have the same conditions as the US. But I think the energy security and the geopolitical argument for US LNG is, is a serious one and it has to be balanced against the climate concerns. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and and with the events in you know Russia and Ukraine and Europe, I think um, you know that energy security argument has really kind of just grown stronger over time. Um, so now let's get to uh, more recent developments and help us understand the sort of policy part of this story. So as some listeners might know, you know, to build an LNG export facility in the United States, the Department of Energy has to determine that a given project is in, quote, the national interest. So that's a really broad term. I'm curious how that term has been defined in the past, how much leeway it gives the Department of Energy, um, and uh, you know, just help us understand what this means. Like, what does it mean for something to be in the national interest? Yeah. Well, if you want to build a big LNG export project in the United States, there are really two key permits that you have to get. One is from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC. That's to build the facility itself. 
And the second is an authorization from the Department of Energy to export natural gas to non-FTA countries. Those are countries that the US doesn't have a free trade agreement with. Both of those things are kind of table stakes. You need them to build a big LNG export facility. So the current debate and discussion is really about how the Department of Energy evaluates proposed LNG projects, and especially whether or not those projects are in the public interest. So it's actually, I think the term is the public interest rather than the national interest. That's the statutory requirement under the Natural Gas Act. And it's not that closely defined. And I think this is an area where a lot of critics you know, are focusing on, on this issue. Basically, the way it's worked is that it's a pretty permissive process. Uh, companies come to the DOE with an export application. They look at the merits of this application, essentially look at the business plan and say yes or no. The, the Natural Gas Act requires the DOE to authorize these exports unless it finds that doing so would not be in the public interest. So what does the public interest mean? It's never been all that closely defined, but there was kind of a clarification that came from the Department of Energy uh, last April. And it basically said, the Department of Energy is required to look at the economic, the uh, natural gas supply and energy security implications um, and other public interest considerations of looking at these facilities. And you know, the argument is that the DOE has taken too lax an approach. It's essentially permitted every export application that comes across its desk. Uh, and that it needs to consider the cumulative impact of all of these LNG exports that have now been authorized. In other words, I think many people believe that it's not enough to just look at the merits of one project. Now that we've approved so many LNG export projects and we have so much that exists today and is coming, maybe the bar should be higher in terms of the impact on domestic gas prices, in terms of environmental justice and impact on local communities, and of course the climate impacts. So that is really what the current discussion and debate is about. And last Friday on January 26th, um, the Biden administration said, basically, we're going to take a pause until we consider how to do this better. Yeah. And I should just note for listeners, we're recording this on uh, January 29th. Um, so just a few days after the announcement, it's all the headlines today in all the energy trade press. So uh, as, as you just mentioned, the administration announced you know, this pause in approving new facilities. Um, that announcement does not affect projects that are in operation or under construction, to my understanding. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but it does affect proposed projects that have not yet received approvals. So I'm curious uh, how the news has been received uh, among various stakeholders, but particularly I'm interested in how the news has been received among US LNG trading partners who obviously have a vested interest here. Yeah, you are correct that this announcement does not affect current export projects or those that are already under construction. And as I mentioned, there's a pretty significant wave of US LNG that's coming. We have four major projects that are still under construction and one that is kind of completing construction now. So there's a big expansion underway. This is really about what happens after that. So essentially it means what happens with US LNG exports after 2030 and when we continue to build out LNG export capacity. Um, I think reactions to this have been really divided. I mean, environmental groups, not surprisingly, many of them see this as a big win, um, a kind of moment of reckoning where the Biden administration got serious about the climate implications of, of US LNG and wants to rein it in until the country takes a good hard look at, especially what the climate impacts are. At the other end of the spectrum, you have you know, LNG exporters and um, political leaders in states like Texas and Louisiana, which is really the, the heartland of the LNG industry they're furious about it. And they see it as 
um, a big problem for global energy security. So reaction is very divided. I, I think a critical issue is how do gas importing countries, including those that have supply contracts for these projects, which will now be on hold for a while, how are they reacting? And I think the reaction so far has been muted. I expect that the Biden administration has done a lot of outreach in Europe and Japan and South Korea to explain this decision, to reiterate to these countries that the US isn't gonna stop LNG exports. But still many, especially Japan, I think have real concerns that we might have supply constraints on US LNG in the future. And I think a big question is how do they seek to influence the Biden administration's approach on this if a second term happens and on the commercial side, if companies now feel compelled to look for alternative suppliers from other countries like Qatar. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you mentioned one thing that I think might be worth expanding on for a second. You mentioned that for some of these projects that have not yet begun construction, they actually have contracts in place with importing countries. Can you, um, did I hear that right? And can you help us understand just like how that works. If you're building an LNG project, you set up the contract with buyers before you get the permits. That's a little surprising, but again, I've never worked in the private sector, so I probably got it all mixed up. These are huge projects. They have a 20 year plus lifespan. They're enormously expensive and they're risky. So in order to reduce that risk and attract financing for an LNG project, typically you've had to sign up a series of long-term supply contracts to reduce the risk associated with the project and to be able to attract the finance, not just to build a facility, but in some cases to build pipelines and, and upstream developments that help supply the gas. That's traditionally how it's worked. I think over time, the traditional share was like 70% debt finance and 30% equity finance to construct a big LNG export project. And so before you can reach final investment decision or sort of pull the trigger on the investment, typically companies have had to sign up a lot of um, buyers in advance. And by doing that, they prove to the banks that it's okay to invest in this project. Uh, I think traditionally a big LNG export project might've wanted to lock up 75 to 80% of its capacity in long-term supply contracts. So even these projects that have not gotten approval yet from the Department of Energy and from FERC, they've been working on getting those supply deals in place for many years and they're all competing against each other. So there are a lot of things you have to set up and kind of line up all of your ducks in a row before you can take final investment decision and go ahead. Great. That that makes a lot of sense. Um, one more question on uh, this topic of you know what's in the public interest. As the Biden administration looks to you know define that term, update the you know how it interprets uh, that part of the statute, I'm curious if you can just kind of reflect on the malleability of this over time with administrations. Is the definition of the public interest uh, for the purpose of LNG exports one of those things that's going to rock back and forth between administrations, the way that the like the value of the social cost of carbon has? And I ask that partly because, you know, we're talking about two things here that are kind of famously difficult to quantify, which is the, the climate implications of LNG exports. You've already helped us understand why that's so complex to kind of calculate and why it's hard to pin a simple number on it. And then geopolitical concerns, which are also you know hugely important, but very difficult to quantify. Um, do you think that the fact that those things are hard to quantify subjects it to lots of political variability over time, or do you think it might be somewhat stable? It's a great question. And to be honest, I don't know. I think this is one of the big uncertainties that's been opened up with this Biden administration review. As I mentioned, over time, it's been a pretty permissive approach. Look at the merits of a certain business plan, 
consider the public interest associated with it. Again, fairly ill-defined. And so far it's been a thumbs up to most of the proposals. Um, it is worth noting here that one particular concern over time has been what will be the impact on domestic gas prices of exporting all this gas? And in the early days of the US LNG export boom, there was a lot of concern about this. Um, industrial gas consumers were very worried about this. You know, people were worried that it would drive up costs for industry and for households. And so between 2012 and 2018, the Department of Energy did a series of studies that looked at exactly this question. What would be the domestic market and price impact of exporting all this gas? And generally it found that LNG exports would be a net benefit for the public. And they ran a whole bunch of different scenarios on volumes of gas exported, on the nature of domestic economic growth and gas demand over time, and essentially concluded that, you know, on net, it would be a benefit to the country. I think there's now uh, a lot of calls to revisit those studies and take stock of the fact that we've had such a big expansion in a short period of time and maybe refresh some of those assumptions. Um, I looked back at some of them recently from my own research, and I found that actually the, the biggest variable, at least for the 2018 study that the DOE did, was really about the nature of um, natural gas exploration and production in the US. And there were some scenarios they ran that said there could be a higher domestic price, but that mostly had to do with the cost of extracting gas in the US and resource availability. And since 2018, US gas output has only grown and grown. I mean, it actually reached an all-time high in December of 2023. So I don't think that part will change, but it is definitely possible that, you know, local community issues and environmental justice will get more sustained attention. When we think about the public interest, maybe there's a need to take those issues into account. And that's a significant issue. In Louisiana, which is one of the heartlands of the LNG export sector, it's not especially densely populated, but in Texas where some of these facilities are and where others are being proposed, those are more densely populated. They're in areas that are home to refineries and a lot of industrial developments. And there are serious issues around air quality and carcinogens. And there's a lot of resistance to building more and more big fossil fuel projects. So I think many people believe it's necessary to hit pause and take a look at those issues and determine whether or not the DOE should get more serious about, you know, incorporating them as it moves forward. Yeah, those are great points. Uh, super fascinating and lots of fodder for more analysis. Um, so one last question, Ben, before we go to our top of the stack segment, um, which is, uh, again, about other countries that are potential receivers of US LNG or that just play a role in these markets. Um, I'm thinking back like 10 years ago or so, uh, when I was doing a lot of research on fracking and the shale boom, one of the things I remember is that uh, a television station that was then called Russia Today and is now called RT started running all of these, you know, news stories about the environmental harms of fracking. And it wasn't hard to like figure out that this sort of like state-backed television program was basically trying to sow fears about U.S. natural gas supply because Russia was concerned about it potentially eating in uh, to Russia's market, which is of course, exactly what's happened uh, over the last decade or so. So I'm wondering um, if you can just talk a little bit more about maybe other examples of countries that have been seeking to influence uh, the trajectory of US LNG. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are a lot of climate concerns about US natural gas production and exports. Um, and most of this has to do with methane emissions. And it is really important to note, I think here, that the Biden administration has made some important moves to drive down emissions from domestic oil and gas production. We had the final rule on 
uh, methane emissions from oil and gas that the EPA passed in December. There was a, a methane waste emissions charge or methane fee in the Inflation Reduction Act. There are new reporting requirements for oil and gas companies that are required um, by the Inflation Reduction Act and the, the changes to the Clean Air Act that happened then. And also the US Department of Energy and the State Department, the European Commission, and something like 15 countries around the world are collaborating on ways to try to track and reduce emissions across gas and LNG supply chains. In other words, to kind of move towards a world where we have more clarity on the emissions intensity of a single LNG cargo or a producing basin or um, a country's emissions and compare them against each other. And the reason for this is that there's a lot of interest in getting a better handle on the emission story. There is market interest in this, but it's definitely driven by policy too. So in the European Union, um, policymakers are close to finalizing EU methane legislation, should be finalized by April or May of this year. And that will include a requirement to collect information on the methane intensity of all the gas that Europe buys. So any supplier to the EU will have to provide data about what kind of measurement, reporting, and verification they're doing, what kind of technology they're using, how they're reducing flaring and venting. And it's all part of this effort to try to get a better handle on emissions intensity. So by 2027 and by 2030 in separate stages, suppliers will have to provide all this data. There are early signs that maybe Japan and Korean companies will start to look at the emissions intensity of the gas they buy. And we're, we're sort of moving to a world where in a couple of years, there will be much more clarity on emissions associated with gas production and exports and a lot more market demand for so-called cleaner or less emissions intensive gas. Um, and I think that this is gonna have a real impact. Personally, I believe that all these efforts to drive down emissions, they really matter more than killing a future supply project. Cause this is about the gas that we produce today and the projects that we know are coming. It's much more impactful to me to drive down emissions from that gas rather than just, you know, delaying or even killing off a, a future supply project. So it's a multi-dimensional problem, but you know things are moving quickly on the methane front, and I think it's going to affect the U.S. LNG sector in a big way. Yeah, that's all really interesting and, and really nicely summarized. Um, so Ben, this has been a fantastic discussion. We've covered a ton of ground in a short amount of time, uh, and just really appreciate your expertise. And, and now I'd like to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests, which is to recommend something that's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack. It can be related to LNG or not at all related to LNG. We're definitely open to all sorts of recommendations. So uh, what would you recommend to our listeners? All right. Well, Daniel, this is my favorite part of your podcast. Um, so what's at the top of my stack is um, a book by Amitav Ghosh. It's called The Nutmeg's Curse. Uh, Amitav Ghosh is uh, a fiction writer. He's a great novelist. Um, he wrote The Glass Palace and the Ibis Trilogy and uh, a whole bunch of other novels that I've really enjoyed over the years. But he's done a lot more work on climate in recent years. And this book, The Nutmeg's Curse, is basically about the history of colonialism and natural resource extraction. and kind of about what's lost with native cultures and traditions around the world when they think about natural resources, volcanoes, landscapes, uh, and things that kind of became part of the capitalist machine over hundreds of years. Um, I saw Amitav Ghosh give a lecture at Georgetown University last fall, and it was fantastic. It was one of the best lectures I've ever seen. And this book really pulls together a lot of disparate issues, and it's just great. I love it. Mm, that sounds so fascinating and a really great recommendation. Well, 
Ben Cahill from CSIS and UT Austin, one more time, thank you so much for coming onto Resources Radio today, helping us understand this interesting and complex topic. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Daniel. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by me. Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.